0: Good morning. Welcome to Discovery's Digital Gathering. We are glad you're here. We are excited for what God has in store this morning. We want to invite you to download our app, which will help you stay current with our community and get further connected by filling out our new visitor card. Let's prepare our hearts for worship and for the adventure of discovering the good news of Jesus together. My name is Scott, and I am one of the elders here at Discovery Christian Church. And I'm so glad to be able to share with you today as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. If you have a Bible, you'll want to turn to Acts chapter 6, as that's the passage that we are going to be in today. Now, this chapter is an important chapter. It marks a transition in the book of Acts because up until this point in time, the the focus has only really been on the apostles themselves and the early church, the expansion that has uh, been seen up to this point in time. And where we are transitioning towards today is this next layer of leadership and some of the practical problems that have resulted from this very quick growth. And generally, you'll find in life that whenever there is a movement and it's growing and it's happening very quickly, Uh, there is gonna be this moment of transition. Sometimes that is from moving to a place of, hey, we've got our well-defined philosophy and ideas, but now how does that actually look in practicality? And that's something that we will see here today in chapter six. Now, immediately preceding this in the uh, previous two chapters, we've also seen though that the church is now starting to come under some threats. Back in chapter four, we can see that there are some external threats that are coming upon the church where the apostles have uh, been under attack, let's say, and arrested by the uh, religious leaders at that time. And then we have also seen that in chapter five, there have been internal threats where people who are doing what are, are very good things to sell property, donating the proceeds to the church in order to take care of people, Uh, They do this good thing, but their motives become really about themselves and how to build up their own reputations um, and really making it look as though they are being more generous than they actually are. And so the the church is at a a moment where it is facing a number of things. And so in today's passage, we will see that there is the introduction of what are known as deacons to address a very specific cross-cultural issue that is going to come up and that this is important for understanding the mission of the church, not just the early church, but also us as the church today. Before we dive into the text, though, I wanna open with one of my all-time favorite quotes, and it comes from a guy named Dom Helder Camara, and he was Archbishop of Brazil, and I think what he has to say is really profound. He writes, "'When I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why the poor have no food, they call me a communist. Let me say that again. When I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why the poor have no food, they call me a communist. I think this is so profound for a number of reasons, but for our purposes today, it's really that this expresses how we can be praised for doing very good things, very practical types of things, taking care of others, those who are the most desperate and needy amongst us. But at the same time, if we elevate this, this discussion to say, why is this even necessary in the first place? What are the structural reasons that are making this condition happen? Suddenly, people no longer look with quite as much favor, or that can happen. We're going to see in Acts 6 today a situation of structural inequality, very specifically around distributing food to the poor. And so we're going to uh, get into this today reading verses 1 through 7. Now, during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task. While we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient the faith so we have a situation taking place where there is a feeding program amongst those who are within the church at that time and there is a distinction being made between two different groups of widows widows being the most destitute those who are going to be reliant on others for their daily needs as society at that time was not going to enable them to provide for themselves. And scripture says that there is uh, a complaint that comes up here amongst the Hellenists. And this is a term that might need just a little bit of unpacking. But what this essentially means is a Hellenist is a person who is living in Greco-Roman times, who is Greek in their language, their outlook, and their way of life, but not in their ancestry. So this might, in some cases, refer to Greek-speaking Jews, but it could be people from other ethnic backgrounds as well. It is simply meaning that their outlook on life and how they approach life is going to mirror the greater cultural society that is uh, dominant at that particular moment in time. And we see here that some of these widows are being overlooked. And I ask myself, how do we even get to the point where this is going to happen? Luke, who uh, is the author of the book of Acts, in his previous book, uh, in Luke chapter 10, verse 27, he records a a story about uh, a Pharisee who asked Jesus, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus says, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, it's also to love your neighbor as yourself. And so I ask myself, why are some of the neighbors within the Christian community being overlooked in this moment? Why are they not being loved as ourselves? And what happened to the early descriptions that happened in the book of Acts? In chapter 2, verses 44 to 45, we come across this beautiful uh, description that says, All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Moving forward a couple of chapters, Acts 4, verses 32, and then the first part of verse 34, we see, Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions but everything they owned was held in common there was not a needy person among them so these initial descriptions they show that there is caring uh, for those who are in this believing community they show there is a lot of sharing and self-sacrifice that people are going towards in order to uh, take care of others. And it shows a a tremendous lack of need. So by the time we reach the end of chapter four, this is still the description we are going under. And yet by the time we reach chapter six, the situation has changed. Though it isn't because of some external influence that has come along and suddenly they're running out of funds and they're having to make some tough uh, choices or anything like that which says to me that this present issue is actually self-created by the community itself. It's not something that is out of their control that they are responding to. And that means it's a structural problem. And a lot of this harkens back to Israel's past because it is often going to be a theme throughout the Bible that as the people of Israel are going to try to identify how much do we need to follow this certain way of doing things? Do we need to be how Israeli, right? How, how much do we need to follow the law? How much do we need to look Jewish, if you will? And if you run into another group of believers who would say, we are believers, but maybe we don't quite look that way because our outlook is Hellenistic, it's more Greek, then there may be a problem that is occurring there. And so within the past of of Israel, as we look at these cross-cultural issues, we do see that in Jesus' day, these are still very much alive between Jews and Samaritans. But we also see throughout the Old Testament, uh, we have Jews and the surrounding nations, many of them that the people of Israel went to war with. We also see though that due to uh, being enslaved by the people of Egypt, by Syria, by Babylon, eventually moving into uh, Persia, The Jewish people have had a lot of experience in cross-cultural settings. And yet, uh, what we see in our passage today is that there is still this lack of familiarity, this lack of comfortability with that. And it certainly appears to me that the only distinction that scripture is even uh, making here in terms of who is getting food and who is not is being made along ethnic and cultural lines, which means that we have to acknowledge that this is an example from within the church of structural racism playing out. And that's a very significant problem, particularly for those of us today. So we should look at what is the response to this problem that the community has. Now I submit that the apostles actually have a number of options that they could have pursued. First, they could have simply ignored the issue, hoping maybe it'll just work itself out, maybe it'll just go away, maybe this is a one-off in some way, shape, or form. Let's just bury our heads in the sand and just pretend it doesn't even exist. Uh, But they don't do that. They could have validated this and said, well, actually, there is something more important about being Jewish, if you will, sort of uh, taking on an Israeli nationalism viewpoint, which might seem a little extreme to us, but when we remember that all 12 of the apostles are themselves Jewish, and at least one is a zealot, so he is definitely a Jewish nationalist, uh, this is actually a viable option that could have occurred. And yet, this is not what happened. They could have also gone to much greater lengths and extremes, convening a conference, taking more of a a legislative or a doctrinal approach, and then responding through some level of policy making. But as we see, even in our own world today, policy is often divisive and ineffective. It might not be followed, and so they wisely choose another path. And what the apostles choose is a relational response the problem they asked the community to select qualified members from amongst themselves which given that we have all of scripture we can see that and go hey that's a, a great choice for them to make but in that moment it may not have been such an obviously great choice particularly as one of the things that is so great about this though is that they are sharing power It is them saying, we could easily hold on to power and we will make the decision on how this is dealt with, but instead, choose from amongst yourself other people who will then address the concern. And that kind of response validates that they believe this is a legitimate issue which needs to be addressed. And I would submit that the the approach must have been effective because we don't hear about the specific issue again. So they end up choosing these seven uh, people who are what we would call deacons. This being the first example of deacons in the Bible. And they are brought forward to address this very specific practical concern. And this will then allow the apostles to continue their focus on church growth and service and prayer. And a couple of things to really note there of importance. Uh, First is that being brought forward to address this specific concern does not mean that once they have addressed it, suddenly they are done. That is just the impetus that got them uh, started and then they are able to move forward in other tasks. Second is that uh, there have been some who really view the words that the apostles use here as being somewhat arrogant, that they're not going to wait on tables as though they feel that that is somehow beneath them. However, If we look carefully at the rest of scripture, we see their time with Jesus clearly illustrates that they are willing to uh, engage in what might be seen as menial tasks. Rather, it's the precursor to that, where it says, it is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to do this, that I think is really most important. Because that shows that they already have a very specific calling and charge from God that they know what that is. And they are aware that for them to move in this direction, though something they feel is good, it would cause them to deviate from that and not be able to carry out fully the mission to which they are already committed. Because it will overwhelm them, becomes another layer of something they must do. And in any form of leadership, there will always be moments where you have to decide this thing, this opportunity that's coming up, is a good opportunity, but does it align with the mission? And if it does not, then maybe it's not the right opportunity at that time, or maybe it's best to find someone else to work within that specific opportunity. Now, there's precedence uh, in scripture as well for sharing the burden. Most notably, if we go back to Exodus chapter 18, we have a story about Moses as uh, the people of Israel are led out of uh, Egypt. And as they're in the wilderness at this point, it is up to Moses to go ahead and hear all their disputes and make... uh, determinations, to render judgments. And this is what normally happens until his father-in-law comes on the scene, sees that this is taking place and says, you're gonna wear yourself out by doing this. What you need to do is find other qualified people who can oversee a number of these cases and then just elevate the the more difficult ones to you. And this is what ends up happening. Now these deacons as well, to return to where we are uh, in our text today, Interesting to note, they are all non-Orthodox men. Six of them are Hellenists and one is a Gentile, which I think is interesting for a number of reasons. First, we see that uh, later on in Paul's writings, deacons can be women as well. So likely the reason that they are choosing men at this point in time has to do with the greater cultural realities, that uh, leadership is just not being developed in many of the women at this time, and they have an immediate issue that they need to address. And so they go to uh, people that they know at this moment in time can address this quickly. They can't afford to wait on this. But then as we see later, female deacons start to emerge as well in recognition of the skills and the abilities that women have. Another thing though is that we see this being, that this is a cross-cultural issue between Jewish and Hellenistic believers. Personally, I would expect to see representatives in these seven coming from both backgrounds. Those of a Jewish outlook, those of a more Hellenistic outlook. It's very interesting to note that the community exclusively chooses men from the background of the aggrieved, which says to me there must be a high degree of trust in that community in order for this to happen. And it also tells me that the Hellenists, because of their very being, if they normally have a non-Jewish outlook on how they live life, and yet we are in Jerusalem, that's where we're situated at this time, then they are living cross-culturally just in their day-to-day existence. And this likely means that they have a certain skill set that is really fitting for them to take on this responsibility, which speaks to our own practical, involvement in just day-to-day life and how God will will give us a certain set of skills that we may not always know how they're going to be useful for us and yet somewhere along the line they may really come into play now if we can step back for just a moment pan out uh, from this story and just look at the wider early church scenario i think there's uh, some other things we can really garner from this as well one of which being that one of the more important things Uh, is that it is important to acknowledge that practical considerations in loving our neighbors and engaging with culture are a very important part of the lived experience of Jesus' followers. If we have those who are dedicated to practical, practical concerns, then we see the church functioning both internally and externally with more than just some philosophical ideas in mind. We're not looking to have just a belief system. We want a belief system that is in action so we see for instance in this story an internal situation of distributing food but this was not an unusual thing for the early church to be doing because we know from church history externally there were many practical things uh, on a social level that the church was doing as well to name a few first the early church was feeding people outside the church as well So people weren't just showing up to the early church because they could get a free meal and they were needing it. They could have done that without coming, but they still showed love and care and concern for the poor outside of their ranks as well. Early church is really well known for taking care of and engaging the sick, which at that point, the wider culture would have avoided them, particularly because they didn't have advanced medicine the way we do today. And so it makes it very easy to become afraid. Someone gets sick, they might transmit that to you. Mortality rates are much higher then than they are now. So there's a very practical reason why the wider culture might have not wanted to engage the sick. And yet the church is known for running to them. A third uh, thing is that the church is also very well known for rescuing and raising abandoned babies and children, which is something I would submit the, the modern church probably needs to engage in a bit more. Because taking in abandoned children, it really demonstrates a few things. One, that it's a long-term relational investment. You can't just take in uh, a baby who's been thrown out on the street and say, well, I can do this for a couple of days or something. That's, it's gonna be a lifetime experience. Uh, Second, it's not a political or philosophical talking point. This is not a litmus test for what do I believe. This is action with a purpose that's being lived out. And then third is that this quite literally represents a rescuing from death, a certain death for these children, or if they had been rescued by someone else who might have had ill intentions, maybe it's rescuing them from things like slavery or sex trafficking in the future all very real parts of that society. So for these children, the engagement of the church in very practical ways leads to a very real lived form of salvation. Just like for these widows, engagement in feeding leads to a very practical and real lived form of being able to meet their needs and allow them to continue living. So where do we go from here? Well, a few questions that we want to ponder. Number one, how have you been treating your neighbors? And are there any ways that you have overlooked them? Number two, do you have any disconnects that exist between your values and beliefs on the one side and your practices and actions on the other? If so, what might you be able to do to close those particular gaps? Number three, what are some practical ways that you can live out your faith? And finally, number four, what is God calling you towards right now for furthering his mission? And I'll give two examples there. One, are you being called to something Uh, that might be embodied by the deacons that we see in the story here today, a, a type of a practical action? Or are you being called to something that is embodied more like the apostles in today's message, where you are staying on a current trajectory because that is part of the mission that you already have very clearly defined and you know this is what God is calling me towards. and so I need to stay on this course, knowing and trusting that there are others who will engage other specific concerns. There is no one right answer to that for all of us. It is simply going to be, where is God speaking to you? And so this week, take some time to ponder these questions, to dialogue with God about them, to journal whatever your process looks like. I began with a quote and I want to end with a different one. And this comes from a theologian named Esau Macaulay. And he writes, Jesus asks us to see the brokenness in society and to articulate an alternative vision for how we might live. This does not mean that we believe that we can establish the kingdom on earth before his second coming. It does mean that we see society for what it is, less than the kingdom we let the world know that we see the cracks in the facade. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that you love us. And I thank you, Lord, that the love that you have for us is more than just some idea, something that we can grapple with in our minds, but never truly experience. I thank you, Lord, that our daily needs are important to you. As you've told us even when you taught us how to pray, Lord, to ask for our daily bread. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would take care of our practical needs here today. And if there's anyone, Lord, who is really needing you to touch them in that area of their lives right now, Would you speak into their situation, Lord? Would you meet their needs? Would you meet their concerns? And would you demonstrate your love for them here in this moment today? And I pray for these things, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.